0: More like me. That's also how you end up binging a show, right? Like, you gotta know. You gotta know. So, one episode turns into 17, and you were late for work the next day, right? So, like, this happens because you've got to know. But I think this, this extends beyond entertainment. I think the drive to know is what led the explorers to cross the ocean. The drive to know is part of the reason why we sent people to the moon. Turns out it's not cheese, right? So we had to know. It's what inspires people to spend millions of dollars on archaeological digs because we want to know what happened. We want to know where we came from. It's what drives scientists to study the mysteries of the universe. But I think this concept of needing to know goes beyond science. It goes beyond history. It goes beyond Entertainment and investigation in general. Knowledge comes from evidence. And the more evidence there is, the more we are secure in our knowledge. Often there is this desire to know because of a deep seated desire to feel secure. We really want to feel secure, and the way that we can feel secure in our reality is to know. And the way we know is measured in evidence. Let me give you a quick example uh, this morning. All right, so, so if a wife feels like her husband is distant, she will often look uh, to confirm her suspicions that he is distant. Or perhaps she will look for ways to confirm that her feelings are wrong, and he does actually love her. Now, this scenario can go either way, so you can flip it if you're more comfortable making it the husband and the wife. You can flip that either way. I call this the the taking score phase, right? You're taking score. The wife starts looking for signs of love. Does he hold my hand? Does he ignore my texts or my phone calls? Does he say I love you. Does he do the household chores and responsibilities he's always done? Does he look for time to spend with me? Right? And each one of those things is evidence. This evidence builds security in the uh, relationship. The evidence builds security in the relationship. But the lack of evidence builds insecurity. It's the same basic concept. We, We need to know. And the more we know, the more confidence we have to trust the reality that we live in. Let me say that again. The more we know, the more confidence we have to trust the reality that we live in. Love's not concrete. You can't prove love You have to take love on faith, but evidence behind love builds security in a relationship. Evidence behind love builds security in a relationship. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, seems to understand this. He seems to understand this need to know, and the security that comes From evidence. Faith is good, right? Faith is good. Faith is essential. For Christians, however, our faith is not baseless. Our faith is not blind. Our faith is anchored in evidence. Amen. Just someone, anyone. I, I waited a while. I was just hoping somebody... Amen, it is. It's anchored in evidence. At least we hope so, right? If we have evidence, is it still faith? The answer is yes, it's still faith. Of course it is. There's so many things that we cannot prove, right? But just because you can't prove it doesn't mean there is not evidence. Amen. Okay, all right, sorry. Weak amen. i got to channel my dad there for a second. Weak amen. All right, so Hebrews 11, chapter 1, defines faith like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The NIV uses a few different words here. The NIV says it's the confidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things unseen. The New American Standard translation says it's the certainty of things hoped for and the proof of things unseen. The the King James, the New King James, uses uh, the translation, the evidence of things not seen. I love how the author of Hebrews was inspired to talk about our faith. Faith is good, right? But we should not hold on to a weak faith. We have the opportunity to strengthen that faith. God wants our faith in Him to be strong. So even though the Bible was written, you know, the apostles and Jesus some 2,000 years ago, King David some 3,000, Abraham some 4,000 years ago, we can have confidence in our faith because of the evidence that God has left us in his word and from the world around us. So we're beginning a series in the book of Luke today. Now, if, if we average about two. Two uh, weeks a chapter, there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke. We're looking at 48 weeks. We're talking about being in Luke for probably a year. Maybe less if we skip around a little bit, but we're going to take our time here and move through this, and here's why. Throughout this year as we study Luke, it is my great hope that our faith will be strengthened as a result of studying the evidence that Luke provides for us in his word. It's, it's my great hope that our faith will be strengthened by the evidence that Luke presents in his word. All right, let's go ahead and relook at that passage that, that Nick read to us without a microphone uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says this, In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We want to... No. And what does Luke say here? That you may have certainty in the things you have been taught. Now there's a lot going on in these four little verses. So what we're going to do today is just look at what Luke did. So this is kind of a, a, a preface, if you will, to the rest of the book. Where he's just saying, hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's who I'm writing to. Here's what's going on. Let me set the stage for what to expect from this book that I'm writing. So we're gonna look at what Luke did, we're gonna look at why Luke did it, and finally we're gonna look at how Luke went about writing this book. So so what do these four verses tell us that Luke has done? What has he done? The passage tells us that others have compiled a narrative account of Jesus' ministry, and Luke said it seemed good to him also, meaning He would also write a narrative account of what had happened in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 3 specifies that he would write an orderly account of what happened. So the two big concepts we're going to see here as we look at the what Luke did is the idea that he's going to write something orderly and that he is going to write a narrative account. So what does Luke mean whenever he says he writes a narrative what does it mean to present a narrative? A narrative can refer, refer to either a written account or an oral account. So in this day and age, not everybody could read. All right, So a lot of the way things were taught and passed on was through oral tradition. So this narrative account could be something that was written down or something that was passed on through oral tradition. Basically what Luke is saying is here is that he collected all the stories that he could about the life and ministry of Jesus, and he compiled it. So he was kind of a story collector, and he compiled it. Now, this word narrative here, this, this refers to the idea of writing a historical, a historical account. So if somebody was just writing the story of, I don't know, the Caesars of Rome, they would write the story as a narrative. They would, they would give history, collect history as a story telling what happened. Luke is doing the same kind of thing as he's writing a historical account. He isn't just collecting and compiling legends. Okay, that's important for us to understand. This is not a collection of legends. He's investigating the real story. Not only is it not legends... The way he's writing is a narrative, which means it's not shrouded in all kinds of symbolism. You guys, or, or it's not a poem that you've got to kind of look through things and, and sort out what things mean. This is straightforward language. A way that we're supposed to be able to process and understand the evidence that's being presented by Luke as he tells the events around the life and ministry of Jesus he wants his message to be straightforward and understandable. Now, look at the language of verse 3. He says, it seemed good, it seemed good to Luke to write an orderly account of what happened. So Luke set out to provide an accurate, sufficient, and orderly picture of what Jesus' life and ministry looked like. Now, for those of us who want to know, right, isn't this a good thing? Like what really happened? Now, I I know that if we could take a time machine back to the time of Jesus, we'd have somebody following him around, recording the kinds of things he taught, recording the kinds of things he did, so that we could bring it back to today and we could know what happened. What Luke is telling us is that was his goal. That was his mission, was to go and collect this information so that we could have a well-researched and well-documented and investigated account of what happened. Isn't that helpful? If we could go back in time, we would do this. But God, in his wisdom, inspired Luke to do this long ago, 2,000 years ago. So what did he do? He wrote this well-researched, well-investigated account for us. That's the what he did. Now let's look at the why. Why did Luke write this? What was his motivation? This comes from verse 4. As he addresses Theophilus here, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, that you may have certainty regarding the things you've been taught, which means that he's probably been taught a lot of things. Now, if you've been a part of a church or Christian subculture Christian life for any length of time, You know everything you're taught isn't always true, right? Okay, so this means that perhaps, perhaps Theophilus has been exposed to some teachings that weren't necessarily in a line with what really happened. How does he separate fact from fiction? How does he know legend from truth? Luke wants him to have certainty, certainty in what he has been taught. So Luke conducted his research and wrote his book to build that kind of clarity in the faith for his friend, Theophilus. So who's this Theophilus? We don't know. We don't know who Theophilus is, okay? He was either a friend of his, um, uh, somebody who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except for at the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, right? So maybe it was a friend of his, somebody he knew, Um, or perhaps Theophilus is a nickname for the church as a whole, Uh, The the name Theophilus means lover of God or perhaps beloved of God. So it's possible that the name is kind of a stand-in for the church as a whole. Uh, Chances are, though, it was probably a real person. This was probably a real person, his friend, somebody he knew. And honestly, most likely, this was a new believer. A new believer, but somebody, we need to note this, who already believed. Okay, According to the commentator Daryl Brock... Uh, the composition of Luke and the book of Acts, which Acts is kind of uh, volume two of Luke, what happened after uh, the earthly ministry of Jesus. Okay, the composition of Luke and Acts aren't really written to convince a skeptic. So some think, all right, so here he is, he's bringing this, this message that there might be certainty, and and the commentator, Daryl Brock, says, hey, let's not think of this book as apologetic. Okay, it's not, it's not designed... To, uh, to, to convince the skeptic, per se. It's better to think of this book as a declaration. This is a declaration of what happened. It is a review for those who experienced it, for those who lived through it. It is simply a testimony of events. So he says he wants him to have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught, which implies that this message is about solidifying things, not trying to convince. An unbeliever. So Luke's purpose here is to establish a reliable account of what happened. Now, I'm sure that as it is a reliable account of what happened, that the, the work itself is convincing to many skeptics and is useful and engaging skeptics as we talk to them about the events that happened. But here's the thing all right, don't think of this gospel as providing counterpoints to someone else's version of things. Okay, this book is not designed to present counterpoints to somebody else's version of things. It is not a response. It's its own account. It is a declaration. This is what happened. Designed to say, this is fact. Other things might be legend that aren't uh, included. It separates The truth from perhaps some of the things that were added around the time of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so what did he do? He wrote a historical narrative and provided an orderly account of his ministry. Why did he write it? He wrote it to build certainty and clarity about what actually happened. Now, how did he do it? This is important. If he's going to reach his goal of providing certainty, then the how matters. Okay? Okay? Anybody can write an account, right? Anybody can say this is what happened. But how do we know if it's going to provide certainty? The how, his methodology, matters. All right, so let's go ahead and look back at our passage and see if we can begin to put it all together and see some important phrases here that tell us how he went about doing this. All right, so let's look again at at Luke 1. 1 through 4, it says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past." to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus that you may be certain that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so we're going to kind of work through this backwards, okay? We're going to start in verse 3 and then work back to verse 1. So how did Luke write this book? All right, he says that he followed all things closely for some time past. He followed all things closely for some time past. Now, this could mean that he's been following the story of Jesus for a long time. It could mean that. He's been following the story of Jesus for a long time. Or it could mean that he has investigated things deep into the past. All right, he's investigated things deep into the, to the past. I think maybe the NIV and the NASB here, the New American Standard, uh, help us get a better sense of what the text means. So let's go ahead and look at this in the NIV. It says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. All right, and then the New American Standard says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. This idea of investigating versus following. Following. Let's just look at that word for a second as that's what's in the, uh, the ESV, following. All right, it's no secret here in our church that I'm a Chiefs fan, right? I have been following the Chiefs for a long time past, right? I've been following them. I'm not the kind of super fan that has the birthdays of all the linemen memorized, okay? I'm I'm not that crazy, though I appreciate you guys. I am an active fan, though, all right? I've been following them closely for some time past. So what that means is this, right? It means that I am active in my observation and investigation. I watch every game that I can. I, I listen to podcasts about the Chiefs. I listen to interviews from coaches and players. I read articles about who they might draft, right? So, like, this isn't a passive thing. To be following them is active, right? I, I, I'm learning what I can. The translators of the NIV and the NASB pick up on this sense of the word follow, and they, they, they take the word follow, and they, they make it more explicit, saying, Investigate. So I investigate the Chiefs as a fan as I dig around on the internet and listen to speculations and injury reports and draft reports and things of that sort, right? In the same way as as, uh, Luke is following the events of the past, he is investigating, he's digging in, he is uh, trying to find out what happened. So when we step back from the book and we, we look at the book of Luke as a whole, We see that the book is filled with all kinds of historical markers, markers in history, things that show he's done his research. We hear references to governors and to kings of Judea. We see things like which Caesar's reigning on the time. Uh, he, He also starts his account in the beginning, right? So as we continue to move through the book of Luke next week, we're going to look at the beginning, Not just the beginning of Jesus' life and the Christmas story, but even the beginning of the forerunner, John the Baptist, before he's born. So how far back does he go? Deep to the beginning. You get what I'm saying here? To to John the Baptist's origins, to the origins of Jesus himself, uh, this is where his investigation leads him. His investigation establishes a verifiable timeline and sets the story in our real historical world. Is that not helpful? So as we think about this book written some 2,000 years ago, Luke does a, such a tremendous favor by showing us that this isn't just made up. It happened. It happened, and you can verify it by looking at these people who really existed and really served in this region at this time. It's so helpful for us. Now, how does he get his information? So if he's going to provide certainty, then his methodology matters. How did he get his information? Well, we know that Luke was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, as you read through the book of Acts, when we studied Acts a couple of years ago, we talked about the us passages where Luke goes from talking about people in third person to including himself in the party. He is referenced, I believe, in the book of Colossians, I didn't make that note, as his dear friend, uh, as Paul's dear friend. He's with uh, Paul in the end um, while he's in prison. So Luke is a a friend and a companion of the Apostle Paul. Much of what Luke has been taught, uh, it comes from Paul. But here's the deal. Paul was not an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Paul calls himself one untimely born, which means he wasn't there. He didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't see the ministry of Jesus. However, Paul was extremely useful in showing Luke how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So what did Paul help Luke understand? How Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But he wasn't an eyewitness to the earthly ministry of Jesus. However, Luke seems to track down people and interview them who were eyewitnesses. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. The beginning of what? I don't know. Maybe it's the life of Jesus, maybe it's the ministry. Of Jesus. But there were those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And what's it say here? It says that they have delivered that message to him, to us. So he interviews these eyewitnesses. He carefully investigates from the beginning those who had seen and heard. What had happened? So they're eyewitnesses and their ministers of the word, mean, meaning they have heard the teachings of Jesus and they have passed these things on to him. And he says that the, the, the eyewitnesses delivered these stories to him. So we're likely talking about interviews with people who saw, who heard, who could verify with their own eyes what they saw and heard. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that there are still many people alive who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Now, as he mentions this, it's almost like, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're still alive. The eyewitnesses are out there. So if Paul is making reference to these people who were eyewitnesses and we know that Luke was a close associate of Paul, then perhaps some of these eyewitnesses are the same people that, that Paul has met and references in 1 Corinthians that Luke has talked to to get this story. And we all know, like, if in an investigation, an eyewitness testimony is so important as it tells us what happened. And so Luke has the opportunity to, to talk to these people, to gather that information, because he knew it would be useful to him. Um, I've referenced this series before a couple times. I can't help it. It's one of my, my favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, the, the TV show Band of Brothers, the, 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 the docudrama, if you will, uh, about Easy Company in World War II. Now, as you watch this, this show, this mini-series, Uh, The beginning of each episode starts out with interviewing these World War II vets. It's really exciting. You get to hear them talk about D-Day and various missions along the way. And then at the end, they do this reveal. They show you not only are these guys just random uh, soldiers who fought in World War II, the stories in Band of Brothers are based on these guys. So, like, they're actually the men who served in Easy Company. They're telling the story. Now, here's something that an eyewitness can do that, like, an officer's report can't do. They can give you those little anecdotes. They can sprinkle in those things that uh, a historical report just won't quite capture. Now, I'm going to speculate here for a second, okay? So I'm speculating. But as I'm thinking about Luke and as he's talking to eyewitnesses and these little special things that are just dropped in here and there... I think about Mary and the Christmas story. And she says, or or Luke tells us, that as all these things were happening, all these wonderful things were happening, that she treasured them in her heart. Who do you think told Luke that? Now, is it possible that somebody who knew Mary told him that? It's possible, okay? It's totally possible. But it's also possible that he had a chance to talk to Mary herself. And do we get some of her story put into the book of Luke with these little details sprinkled in there so that he could uh, let us behind the curtain of history and see what had happened. I think that's so wonderful, the joy of these human interviews. But his uh, his investigation wasn't merely uh, about human interviews, though. Look at verse 1. Luke, verse 1 says this, that many have undertaken to compile a narrative. What's that tell us? Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Is Luke the first account of Jesus' life written? This passage would say no. All right? So, uh, and, and this, this narrative, remember we talked earlier about oral traditions. By the time Luke writes his book, there are oral traditions being passed around about the life of Jesus. In addition... Uh, The book of Mark was almost certainly written before the book of Luke, and Mark was almost certainly source material for Luke as he's investigating and he's compiling uh, stories. I I am in the scholarly minority here. Um, I believe Matthew was written first. Most scholars will say Mark was written first. I have my reasons. Uh, But anyway, uh, maybe even Matthew was a source for Luke. But these weren't the only two gospels, the only two accounts of Jesus' life at that time. So what we have here is is a compiling here and a fact-checking. And, and, oh man, in the Internet age where everybody just clicks share, right? Could you just imagine the life of Jesus on social media, right? Like share, unverified, share, unverified, right? So one of the things that Luke does for us is he's doing fact-checking. He's cross-referencing stories against other accounts that have been written. He's cross-checking, he's not cross-dressing, he's uh, cross-checking stories against the interviews that he's done so that he can compile an accurate narrative. I just think, man, praise God that somebody did this because it helps us have confidence in what we have written down. The whole point was to strengthen the faith of believers. So as Luke sorts through this, it would be unlike him to perpetuate lies or exaggeration. He would want to present a verifiable account of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He'd want somebody who reads it to be able to go talk to somebody who was there and they could say, yep, that's how it happened. That's what I saw. That's what I remember. He wants to present an orderly account, an orderly account. Now, even though Luke uh, seems to largely be written in chronological order of the events that took place in Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, Luke does seem to still rearrange some events of when what happened. Uh, So when we when we hear the word orderly, we need to ask ourselves, what's the purpose What's the purpose of the book of Luke, and what kind of order is he presenting? Well, he's trying to present an orderly account that presents Jesus as having fulfilled fulfilled what the Old Testament has said about him. So the way the book is ordered, yes, is historical, but he wants to make sure that we see, his readers see, that Jesus is the Son of God and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. All right, so let's look at Luke 1.1 again. Luke 1.1 1, 1 says this. So, again, we're talking about how. How did he do this? He did this through eyewitnesses. He did this through going through other historical accounts. And he did this by presenting an orderly account that presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Luke 1.1 1, 1 says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished here. Let's look at that word accomplished. This comes from the same Greek word that is often translated as fulfilled. As a matter of fact, the ESV translates this same word as fulfilled in other parts of the book of Luke. Luke wants us to know that Jesus was more than just a miracle man and an amazing teacher, though he was that. Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus fulfilled God's promises. Jesus fulfilled the promises of God among us. Now that's important. Among us. That gets back to Jesus didn't do his ministry in a vacuum. He did his ministry among people. And since he did it among people, it can be verified by talking to those people. So he, he uh, fulfilled the promises of God among us. The followers of Jesus Aren't just making claims about him that aren't fact or that, that come after the fact, okay? So a lot of times people will say, all right, well, it's easy to go back and write revisionist history. So revisionist history says what? Well, in light of things, we're gonna rewrite the narrative to make it fit what we want it to fit. But he says that it's filled, fulfilled what? Among us which means this isn't a revisionist narrative, but it happened among the people, and he wanted them to see that Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. All right, so Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, is one of these instances where we see Jesus use the word fulfill. So he says, all right, I'm going to set out to show you how Jesus fulfills the promises. Now, as we go through, we get to chapter 4, and Jesus' public ministry is really just getting getting started. And Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And while he's in his hometown of Nazareth, he he gets up and he speaks on the Sabbath and reads from a scroll. And we have this uh, in Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah. In Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the same word. What's Jesus saying? I have come to fulfill this. Luke is saying, I'm going to show you he came to fulfill this. But this isn't the only time that this happens, all right? So as he fulfills this, as we're going to look through the, the teachings of Luke and Jesus, as he presents Jesus' teachings and his miracles, as we move through the book, we're going to see him proving the case that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Now, after he was raised from the dead, this is, uh, comes from Luke chapter 24, we see this idea of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament continued. Uh, we don't have time to talk about it today, to read the whole passage, okay? But uh, this is the story of the road to Emmaus. After Jesus had been crucified and he'd raised from the dead, and uh, the disciples were, were learning about Jesus' resurrection, two men are walking between two towns on the way to the, road, or on the, way to the city of Emmaus. And uh, we have this exchange between uh, some random dude and two friends. Now, we all know that this random dude is Jesus, but they did not... Okay, and so this is how the story goes in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, and this is Jesus talking to them, and they don't know. "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, what does Jesus do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did he do? He showed them how he fulfilled the scriptures. The promises of God have been fulfilled among us. Now, I'm going to do some speculating here just for a second because that's all, all we can do, all right? Uh, Luke doesn't have a, um, a bibliography uh, that we can turn to for his sources. But Luke calls one of these men by name. In verse 18, he references a guy named Cleopas. And this account isn't in any other gospel. So it's almost like Cleopas told Luke this story. Why is this in the book of Luke? Perhaps he had an opportunity to sit down with this guy, and he told him the story. Why did it make it in there? Because Luke perhaps interviewed him. I just love that that we get this kind of glimpse. Why do we have his name? We don't have the other guy's name. Why not? I don't know, but perhaps it's because uh, Cleopas was the guy who told him. I love that. All right, but Luke makes the point to tell us that Jesus revealed himself and all the law and the prophets to show himself as the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, just a few verses later, as Luke closes out this volume one of his work, Luke tells us this. This comes from uh, Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. I want you to see, he opens with fulfill. Jesus' ministry is kicked off with fulfill. We have Jesus showing uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus uh, that he has fulfilled. And then how does the book close? And he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in Luke 1, we have him say that these things are fulfilled among us, meaning that the apostles and others were witnesses. That's how he kicked off his ministry, and then after the resurrection, he told this to Cleopas, and then after that, this is the final charge that he leaves to his followers, that they should have confidence, confidence, that he is who he said he was, that he fulfilled the scriptures. Now what should we be looking at as we move through this gospel is opportunity to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We should be looking for evidence that he was the promised Messiah and Savior. We should look for miracles and his teaching to provide evidence that he was who he claimed To be. And in the end, our faith should be strengthened to the point that we have certainty about these things. And as we have certainty about these things, and as we know these things, we become witnesses. We become witnesses to the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Our witness is reflected in the witness that we have received through the proclamation of the good news in the Scriptures. And I love how Luke closes uh, Volume 1 with this charge to the nations. What does he say? Uh, he says that this should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he goes into a little more depth as he opens the Book of Acts, Volume 2, and, and the Great Commission as it's captured in the Book of Acts in Acts one It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who shall be his witnesses? That's us. We have the opportunity to be his witnesses as we know him, as he's revealed in his scripture, as, as the Old Testament shows he's coming, and the New Testament tells us who he was. And, and the letters of Paul and the other letters show us how we can have confidence in what these things mean we get the opportunity to be his witnesses, to tell of others the good things that Jesus has done. So as we look at the book of Luke over the next year, we should be putting things in our mind and in our hearts that allow us to tell others the good news, allow us to be effective witnesses. Are we eyewitnesses? We're not eyewitnesses per se, all right? But we are secondhand witnesses to the eyewitness testimony that Luke records for us. And we get a chance to be the eyewitnesses of what the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ has done in our own lives. Our lives get to be a testimony of how the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, is still effective today, even though the events of the New Testament happened 2,000 years ago. His word is good. And since his word is true, his word endures. And since the message could change lives then, It can change lives today. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you do. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the way that you inspired Luke, the way your Holy Spirit worked in his heart as he uh, sifted through all these stories, as your Holy Spirit guided him to present a reliable account of who you were in what you did, that we may have certainty in the things that we've been taught. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who, who doesn't know you, that you'd begin to soften their hearts, that they would see the testimony recorded for us centuries ago, and that they might be, uh, by the power of your Spirit, convinced of who you are. Father, I pray that we might be emboldened to share the truth of who you are as we read this, uh, this book of Luke this year. May we be strengthened, and may uh, our own faith um, be bolstered as we learn who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we sing these last couple songs, this is our time to respond. However the Lord's working in your life, if it's just to praise him for the fact that he has given us a, a researched and thorough teaching of who he is, if you just want to praise him for that, then now's the time to do that. If, if this is showing you, hey, maybe, maybe God's word is more reliable than I thought, as, as its testimony is that it's based on uh, real historical events, and you want to know more about what it is to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you about that. If there's just some burdens you need to lay down before the Lord here at the altar and pray, then you should do that as well. Adam? Please stand with us. And let's sing together.